Chapter 12, here it's called The Contrary Truths. Maybe a more normal translation would be The Inverted Truths, the Viparyaya. Um, and maybe a better translation is The Inverted and the Truth. The, the inverted views and true reality. That would be another way to translate it. Far apart from all inverted views. And uh, skipping down a little bit here towards uh, the fourth paragraph in the chapter. This is the kind of summary of this chapter. Bhagavan, living beings have inverted views, inverted ideas, when they have acquired the five psychophysical elements of the individual. Maybe we could say when they've appropriated the five aggregates, the five skandhas, the psychophysical elements of the, uh, the body and mind called the five aggregates, and when um, living beings appropriate these five aggregates, when they believe they are these five aggregates, when they grasp these five aggregates uh, as an independent self, then they have these inverted views which are, as the sutra says, the impermanent is considered permanent. Suffering is considered happiness. The non-substantiality of the self, or what is not self, is considered substantial self, and the impure is considered pure. This is a great summary of uh, important teaching of early Buddhism that uh, that that's four major types of misunderstanding right these these inverted views and that's widely taught in the Pali suttas we look at impermanent conditioned phenomena we assume think that they're permanent we look at uh, at what is not ultimately satisfying, and we think it is ultimately satisfying, and we look at uh, what is not self, we consider it to be self or to have a self, and what is not pure, again, pure here, we could understand to mean um, pure is like free of, of duality. And impure means infused with the false view of duality. So that which is infused with dualistic outlook, we uh, take as pure. Yeah, that's that's a nice summary. Based on the Buddha teaching that all conditioned, compounded phenomena... That's, we talked about 
conditioned compounded phenomena in the earlier class, that which is samskritta, that which is made, compounded, conditioned. All these conditioned phenomena are not permanent. There's not one conditioned phenomena that's permanent. They're all impermanent. They're all ultimately unsatisfactory. They're all not a substantially existing self. And they're not pure of duality. Yeah. So um, this is kind of, this could have been right out of one of the early sutras, this section here. Um, that's how sentient beings usually misinterpret reality. Shimala uh, goes on. The knowledge of all arhats and pratika buddhas, you could say furthermore, the knowledge of all arhats and pratika buddhas has not originally apprehended the dharma body of the Tathagata, nor the realm of Buddha's omniscience. Omniscience is uh, in Sanskrit sarva jnana, like all knowing, all knowing often gets translated into English as omniscience. And that's just how the Buddha, the Buddha is said to be omniscient or all knowing, knowing everything as Buddha. And uh, so uh, kind of another name for the Dharma body, Dharmakaya, remembering Dharmakaya, the Buddha is the reality body, inconceivable, timeless, boundless, like space, uh, indestructible, true body of Buddha. So uh, not only do um, sentient beings uh, think that what is impermanent is permanent and so on, but furthermore, the Shravakas and the Pradika Buddhas, these um, uh, kind of pre-Mahayana uh, enlightened beings, um, they, even they, uh, have not apprehended the Dharmakaya nor the realm of omniscience. Right? This is kind of a Mahayana statement. They do actually, um, they do actually understand that impermanent phenomena really are impermanent. I think that's another way we could hear this. Usual sentient beings, um, they kind of hold a view of a self. They think that what is impermanent is permanent and so on. These four inverted views. The uh, Shravakas and Pradeka Buddhas, if they have some awakening, they no longer do that. They actually see the conditioned impermanent phenomena as impermanent, as they actually are. But then in this sutra, Sri Maladeva is saying, but these Shravakas and Pradeka Buddhas, they haven't yet seen the Dharmakaya or the all-knowing reality of Buddha. Uh, if there are living beings who believe in Buddha's words, they will have thoughts of permanence, happiness, of self, and of purity. So here we have three, three types of beings are mentioned. 
and follow this. Ordinary sentient beings, they think that what is impermanent is actually permanent. In other words, they think conditioned things are permanent, ultimately satisfying, some kind of substantial self and pure. That's the normal thing. These Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas, the early Buddhist um, practitioners who have some insight, they no longer do that. Now they see the conditioned um, impermanent things as impermanent. And the ultimately dissatisfying conditioned things as ultimately dissatisfying. So they have some insight now. They go beyond normal sentient beings. But these Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas, they haven't seen this, uh, the true Buddha insight about permanence, happiness, or ultimate satisfaction, the true self, and true purity. They haven't seen that. They just realized that all conditioned things are not that way. So this is pointing towards, they haven't really explored the unconditioned realm of the Dharmakaya that actually has these qualities of permanence, and self, and purity, and um, true happiness, this, in in an unchanging kind of way. Can you follow this? Just, like, this, this is a nice um, teaching, I think, and, and a really important and new teaching in the sutra that shows up later in other Buddha nature sutras. It's a, we're getting a Buddha nature, um, kind of revision or kind of addendum to the early Buddhist teaching. The early Buddhist teaching, all impermanent, all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. And the other three, then, and the, and then this kind of enlightenment in the early tradition is to no longer have that confusion. We see impermanent conditioned things as impermanent. But now in this Buddha nature teaching, not only is that true, the insight that the Shravakas and the Pratika Buddhas have, that's still true. That is a great insight. But there's a further insight about the unconditioned reality of the Dharmakaya. And also I could say Tathagatagarbha is basically the Dharmakaya, just temporarily obscured. Buddha nature is, you could say, not impermanent because it's not a conditioned phenomenon. It's unconditioned. So it's unchanging. It is pure. It is the realm of total satisfaction. It is reliable contentment. It's not dissatisfied ever. And and most radically of all, it is a true self. I think this may be the first sutra that, um, well, actually, I think Parinirvana Sutra brings this up first, this issue of true self. This is the, um, this is continuing that theme uh, of Buddha nature sutras. Uh, so again, the um, 
those who believe in the Buddha's words will understand permanence, happiness, self, and purity. And by the way, this in Japanese, this um, permanence, happiness, self, and purity is jo raku ga jo. Jo is uh, permanence. Raku is um, uh, like bliss or happiness. Ga is self, and Jo is purity. So we chant this right in the um, the uh, Enmejuku Kanan Yo for protecting life. There's that line Jo Raku Ga Jo. That's these four um, qualities of the Dharmakaya and Buddha nature. So we could say that the Enmejuku Kanan Yo, this short chant that we do in Japanese, is kind of a Buddha nature text. Actually, I think I would say that it doesn't explain anything. The line just says Joe Rakugajo, but it's, it's pulling from, it's drawing from these, um, Buddha nature sutras, especially Paranirvana sutra. So, Shimala Devi sutra. It's just a little footnote. Uh, these are not contrary views, but are correct views. This is, you know, a new thing to those who follow the um, original foundational vehicle of the, of the Buddha. This would sound really radical. We're used to this kind of thing, but they would say, really, there is a realm that's permanent, bliss, pure, and a true self. And the Buddha is saying, or Sri Maladeva is saying, um, these are not inverted views. These are correct views. Because we're not talking about conditioned phenomena. We're talking about unconditioned reality. Oh, this is clear. Saying this over and over. It's one of those key Buddha nature sutra teachings that you find again and again. And it's a great teaching, I think. It's a great meditation to reflect on this. These are not inverted views, but are correct views. Why? The Dharmakaya of the Tathagata, which is unconditioned, is the perfection of permanence, the perfection of happiness, the perfection of substantial self, and the perfection of purity. Perfection here is paramita, like when we talk about the six perfections, paramita literally means like that which is gone beyond that which has that which has crossed over that's the literal meaning perfection is kind of a a nice english one word kind of meaning of perfection literally it's it's that which has gone beyond or crossed over these are the six practices for going beyond or crossing over to the shore of freedom um but that can also can mean transcendent. It's like going beyond. So we could say great transcendent wisdom, prajnaparamita. These are all ways to translate. So I think here, and I, instead of saying perfection of, and uh, Gregory Wonderwheel, who's not here tonight, also um, agreed with this point. 
that maybe perfection of permanence is a little funny sounding. I think transcendent works nicely here. The Dharma body of the Tathagata is transcendent permanence. We could say here that it's permanence that's gone beyond the the limited views of impermanence, but also beyond the limited view of things being permanent because it's not a thing. So it's, it's gone beyond the dualistic views of usual way of thinking of permanence and impermanence. That would be one way to hear permanent paramita or nitya paramita, transcendent permanence. And it's a transcendent happiness. You could say gone beyond the um, usual dualistic view of I feel happy today and I feel unhappy today. It's not really that kind of happiness. It's just like there is nothing, um, there's no flaw, there's no problem for the Dharmakaya. Therefore, there's no there's no dissatisfaction. So even happiness is a little funny. Maybe bliss. I mean, the Buddha did say nirvana is bliss. Maybe even more, if we want to get a little more down to earth, we could say complete contentment, unchanging contentment and, and, uh, ease, transcendent ease and contentment. Uh, it's that sukha. Paramita. And, uh, and the perfection of substantial self. Atma Paramita. Like, um, an, an Atman, a transcendent Atman that has gone beyond our usual ways of thinking about a separate individual self. It, this, I would say the Dharmakaya is not a separate self. But it is a, um, a permanent self. It's transcendently permanent. It's transcendently satisfied. It's transcendently a self. It is our true nature. Shri, the Buddha and Srimala Devi are gutsy in the, as Buddhist practitioners to pull out this term Atman and say that's how reality is. It is a true self. Not, um, I mean, here it's translated as substantial self. Uh, I wouldn't say that. It's not, it has no substance really, but I would say true. It's a true, truly abiding, unchanging, real self. I wouldn't mind saying that. I don't think Srimada Devi would either. And finally, it's the um, transcendent purity, uh, Shuba Paramita. It is pure of all duality. And the key point here is that this is an unconditioned, uncompounded reality, Dharmakaya. So it doesn't contradict the earlier teaching that all conditioned, compounded, experiences are not this way. It's just the other side of the story that was never told until these Buddha nature sutras. Those who see 
the Dharmakaya of the Buddha in this way are said to see correctly. Shumala says, those who see correctly are the true sons and daughters of the Buddha, the true disciples, the true children of the Buddha, the Bodhisattvas. They arise from the Buddha's words. That's where these children of the Buddha, they arise from Buddha's words, these words, from the true Dharma and from conversion to the Dharma, attaining the remaining benefits of Dharma. That's a sweet summary of this chapter. Then um, moving on to another really important um, chapter. It's getting near the end here. But this, this, um, and we chose to chant some other sections in our chanting, but I thought we could have, could chant this whole chapter. It's, it has a lot of important and original teachings here. It's called, um, chapter 13, the inherently pure, the naturally pure. Bhagavan, the cycle of birth and death, uh, which is the Chinese way of translating samsara. Samsara is a cyclic existence, and the Chinese is translated as birth, death. But it looks like the original Sanskrit sutra here may be actually using the terms birth and death. Uh, like the Sanskrit, like jara, marana. Um, so either way works. The cycle of birth and death, samsara, is the cycle of suffering. That's kind of what this birth and death business is kind of like unsatisfying business. The cycle of birth and death depends on Tathagata Garbha. This is a, this is a new one. This has never been spoken before in this world system. It's getting into non-duality, right? Because Tathagata Garbha is like a pure, unchanging Dharmakaya mixed together with obscurations like birth and death. It's kind of an obscuration. Is changing birth and death seems to hide and obscure and conceal the purity of the Dharmakaya. The undying, unborn purity of the Dharmakaya seems to be hidden by birth and death. Birth and death kind of distracting us from that which is unborn and undying. Yeah. But he, we've heard that kind of thing before in the sutra. But here we're saying that birth and death that is obscuring the, the, the Dharmakaya. Part of the obscuration in the Tathagatagarbha also depends on the Tathagatagarbha. We maybe did say this kind of thing earlier, but I think here the sutra is really bringing it out. That the obscurations to reality depend on reality. Uh, because the Tathagatagarbha is referred to as the original limit or the reality, which is unknowable. Birth and death depends on Tathagatagarbha because Tathagatagarbha is reality. Say it like that. 
Bhagavan Tathagatagarbha is referred to as the cycle of birth and death as a proper designation. In other words, you can call Tathagatagarbha samsara if you want to. I think that's what it, she's saying. Just like um, we were talking about in previous weeks, um, what is a sentient being? Sometimes we say it's an obscuration to Buddha nature, but sometimes we say it is Buddha nature. And in this case, we're saying Tathagatagarbha can be called a sentient being. Literally here, Tathagatagarbha is called birth and death. That's what it's called. That's a proper designation for Tathagatagarbha. This is how Sri Maladev is talking today. <laughs> Bhagavan, this cycle of birth and death, is the extinction or the cessation of the senses. Uh, you know, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And the subsequent arising of new senses. This is called the cycle of birth and death. I think this is an interesting way to talk about the cycle of birth and death. From, um, I think this would fit into foundational Buddhism also. What is birth and death actually? Well, we think, oh, it's when like, you know, a person pops out of the womb and then when a person stops breathing or something. That's kind of a coarse kind of physical description of birth and death. A, a, a kind of a experiential description of birth and death is that death is the ceasing of the six senses and birth is the arising of a new, of new six senses. Isn't it like that? You could say that baby popping out of the womb pops out and immediately like experiences the world in six ways. Its eyes open, its ears open, nose, tongue, body and mind open. And experiences a world, and at the at the end of its life, at death, those six senses um, shut down, and there's no longer experience of the world in that way. And then um, a new six senses arise, a new birth. So, birth and death is is um, is the the cycle of birth and death is the cessation of these six senses, and then the Subsequent arising of new senses. This is called the cycle of birth and death. It's a kind of mind or experiential orientation about birth and death, which is kind of how this Buddha nature teaching is kind of mind oriented. Um, not so kind of chunky, physical oriented. Um, she goes on. Bhagavan, these two phenomena, birth and death, are the Tathagatagarbha. So, from the previous definition, we could say, the arising of the six senses and the ceasing of the six senses, that's Buddha nature. Tathagatagarbha. It is worldly, worldly convention to say, there is birth and there is death. Death is the cessation of the senses, Birth is the arising or the manifestation of new senses. So, so Tathagatagarbha is the cycle of birth and death. Then the next sentence, she says, 
Tathagatagarbha is neither birth nor death. It's a total contradiction. So this is like this both sides of the story. Just, just in the same way that we say, a sentient being is the obscuration to Buddha nature, and sentient being is kind of the definition of Buddha nature. They sound opposite. They are opposite sounding, but they're both true from different perspectives. Same here. The, um, this arising of six senses and ceasing of six senses in, in, in the, in the boundless field of awareness, the arising of seeing and hearing and thinking and so on. All this stuff is, is, um, aspects of knowing of this unchanging knowing field we call Tathagatagarbha. So that's why we could say the arising of the senses and the ceasing of the senses, birth and death are this nothing but this unchanging awareness itself taking the form of seeing and hearing and so on. So yes, this birth, this type of birth and death is a way of looking at Functioning of Tathagatagarbha. But then here she said, Tathagatagarbha is neither birth nor death. Because the Tathagatagarbha is separate from the conditioned. And Tathagatagarbha is eternal and unchanging. So that makes sense too, right? So you could say, really this, this, the unchanging screen of awareness that's Tathagatagarbha, and that's not being born and dying. And yet the appearance of the senses arising and ceasing, that kind of birth and death on the screen, the images on the screen do seem to be arising and ceasing, like birth and death. So they are nothing other than the screen itself. So both are true. There's an unchanging screen and there's a changing images and both are the Tathagatagarbha, right? Sounds contradictory, but both are true. And it's good to be familiar with both aspects, the unchanging aspect and the changing display. And what is the, what is the tr- actual nature of the birth of the six senses? And the, and the changing operation of seeing a blue, seeing red, seeing yellow, all that changing experience. What is its true nature? Just the unchanging screen. The true nature of birth and death is the, is the unchanging, unborn, undying. The true nature of birth and death is the unborn, undying. It's another way to say this. The Tathagatagarbha is eternal and unchanging. Therefore, the Tathagatagarbha is the basis, the support, and the foundation. Bhagavan, the Tathagatagarbha is not separate, not cut off from, not liberated from, not different from inconceivable Buddha qualities and attributes like love and compassion. We heard this before. 
almost the same sentence. And Bhagavan, the basis, support, and foundation of conditioned phenomena, which are separate from and different from these Buddha qualities, are also the Tathagatagarbha. So this is, there's some dense sentences here, but they're very similar to what we heard before. Uh, in that earlier section where you might recall a key kind of punchline of the sutra is that the, um, Tathagatagarbha is empty of all the, um, conditioned phenomena and the obscurations, but it's not empty of these Buddha qualities like love and compassion. This is very a similar kind of riff on that earlier section. Yeah, we can go through this again because I think this is a another central paragraph of the whole sutra, I would say, that's kind of unique to this sutra. The Tathagatagarbha is not birth and death here. Because the Tathagatagarbha is not conditioned. It's the unconditioned. The Tathagatagarbha is not separate from these inconceivable Buddha qualities and attributes like love and compassion. And at the same time, this Tathagatagarbha is the basis and support and foundation of all conditioned phenomena, which are separate from Buddha, you could say. The Tathagatagarbha is not separate from the inconceivable Buddha qualities. And it's at the same time that Tathagatagarbha is the basis, support, and foundation for all conditioned phenomena that that also obscure it. Very similar to this earlier section, but this time it's bringing up this new point that the Tathagatagarbha is a basis of foundation and support. In other words, like, all conditioned phenomena arise from the Tathagatagarbha. It sounds like that to me, which is why um, some people have noticed, like Gregory mentioned this earlier, I think with jumping ahead to this section, that um, this uh, sounds a lot like the storehouse consciousness of the Yogacara tradition, because the storehouse consciousness is definitely like a basis in support. It's even called that. And it's Mishraya, um, I think that uh, is the, means the basis. Um, in Yogacara, they call Ashraya, almost the same term, the um, storehouse consciousness that gives rise to all kinds of conditioned experiences. And later, we, like the Lankavatara Sutra starts to equate the storehouse consciousness with the Tathagatagarbha. You could say, based on Srimala Devi's teachings, I could easily un- understand that's why that sutra could start mixing these two different types of teachings. 
where the sutra they never mention storehouse consciousness, but it's a very similar idea that Tathagatagarbha is the basis, support, and foundation for all conditioned phenomena. It is the unconditioned, and it gives rise to, could we even say it produces, I might be stretching it, but it sounds kind of like that, it produces all experiences. It's the basis, the foundation, and the support for all experiences. And again, if, if this starts to sound like, well, kind of like metaphysical, like, you know, weird new ideas is this. It sounds like a creator God or something. A little bit. But if we try to bring it back to our own experience, I think it's not so far-fetched. Remember, right now, our true nature is ever-present awareness. And if we if we settle really deeply and start examining it carefully, it seems to be always the same. It's just pure knowing. It's, and it's not, doesn't seem to be born and die every moment like dualistic consciousness does as dualistic consciousness arises with each new experience, each new color and sound is a dualistic consciousness. But there's this background there's this unchanging reality that's just like the screen. It's not born and not dying. And you could say, what about this experience of um, a conditioned phenomena like, um, like um, this cup? This cup is generally considered like a conditioned, a compounded phenomenon. I mean, it's like, it's made up of stuff. It's like, it's, it's, it's depends on seeing, right? It's not just, and it depends on feeling and, and so on, right? That was what we mean by a conditioned experience. Phenomena, I think, really means experience. It's a conditioned experience. Could we say that this experience of Seeing and holding the cup is conditioned phenomena, a conditioned experience, um, is arising on the basis of this unchanging awareness. In other words, the unchanging awareness is, uh, like taking form as this temporary experience of seeing a cup. I think we can understand our experience right now. To, we could we could frame it in this way. We could we could see if that rings true for us, especially if we have some sense of this unchanging um, nature that's ordinary mind is always with us, always in us. As Suzuki Roshi says, this vast space um, in which everything is happening, in which our life is happening. If we have some sense of this. And we could see out of this spacious awareness, experiences are happening moment to moment. Conditioned experiences are happening. And these conditioned phenomena or experiences are arising on the basis of this unconditioned awareness. They are actually the awareness itself manifesting, expressing itself as seeing a cup, hearing a bird call, 
think that's the experiential meaning here. And in this kind of like, oh, it's such a language. It's, you could spend some time, you know, reading these, this paragraph again and again, actually. I recommend it. I've read it many times and I, I love it a little bit more each time I read it. Oh, this section here of the paragraph. The Jitagata Garba is eternal and unchanging. Therefore, it's an interesting therefore. Therefore, the Jitagata Garba is the basis, the support, and the foundation, in parentheses, of all conditioned, changing things. And then the Jitagata Garba is not separate from or different from these inconceivable Buddha qualities like unchanging love and compassion, unconditional love and compassion. And the Tathagata Garbha is the basis, support, and foundation of conditioned phenomena, which are something other than unconditional love and compassion. That's my kind of slight retranslation there. Can you follow the gist? Yes, David. So this may be um, like a dualistic question, just sort of inherently. Um, but like there's part of me that wants to say, Okay, so if it's a manifestation of this, you know, unchanging thing, why do we refer to it as, you know, an obscuration? Like, the, like it just, it bends my mind because mm-hmm. of the connotation of what an obscuration mm-hmm. is. Yes. Uh, you know, like the metaphor of the screen. Mm-hmm. Somehow that resonates with me where you've got mm-hmm. this sort of substrate, which is unchanging mm-hmm. and you're just through your senses continuously projecting on it. And our delusion is to place greater weight on the projections and lose track of the screen altogether. And so I suppose it's like a obscuration in that sense, but what yes. you're, you just answered your own question. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's a great question uh, because it's an experiential question, which is the ones we should be asking. We should be clarifying these teachings, but we should ask more and more. Um, well, is this really so? Like, how is this experientially? And I think you asked that nicely. Yes, I- exactly. It seems like a contradiction if you just read the words, but um, these you could say these pure um, manifestations of Buddha nature. And I'm saying pure because that's what they're made of, right? They're, they're Dharmakaya. Like, you know, the sound of the bird is pure and that it's just the Dharmakaya manifesting as that sound, right? Just like the screen is inherently pure and um, the images on it are then in their nature also pure. So why would we call these pure appearances obscurations? And like you said yourself, because they seem to 
conceal or hide the purity of the Dharmakaya. They don't really, I think that's, that's a key thing about these obscurations is if we look closely, they're not actually obscurations, but they function as obscurations for almost everybody. We get all caught up in them. We grasp them and we, and we feel like I can't, um, see the Dharmakaya now because like I, I keep thinking. Well, actually, it seems that way. But actually, the thoughts themselves are the Dharmakaya, right? Manifesting as thoughts according to conditions. So thoughts don't really obscure the Dharmakaya, but they seem to. They are. And that's um, the point. And that's, that's a kind of a non-dual understanding, which is a great gift. And this kind of thing, we can, if we remember this kind of thing in Zazen, wow, what a gift. We're in the middle of like, I can't do it. I can't find this, this like blissful, you know, eternally blissful <laughs> Dharmakaya right here in Zazen because like, I'm just like a mess. I'm like thinking of all this stuff. I have like, I'm kind of upset and averse to the whole thing. And then if we can remember deeply this teaching, more and more familiar with it, more, we could really it can really knock us over the head with its impact of like, actually, these thoughts are actually the, and these, and these, and even the aversion is actually the Dharmakaya manifesting uh, as thinking and aversion. And, and not just like the idea that that's so, maybe it starts as the idea that that's so, because we trust Sri Maladevi said it and the Buddha said it, but more and more we can start to feel into that reality of that of like no it really actually it makes sense it actually it seems according to this model we're setting up this model the screen and the images and so on the more we like go over and over and you know apply the analogy to our experience moment to moment in zazen and out of zazen the more it can start to ring true and we can start to kind of know it like no i've I really do know that my aversion really is perfectly content um, and radiant Buddha awareness. I'm like, really? That's amazing. But yeah, I do trust that. And then more and more deeply trust it. So maybe eventually, gradually, we can, this trust builds. And she talks about this trust later near the end. At some point, it might be like right when the aversion's arising, we already know you could say in the back of our mind, but the meaning like in our guts, we know that actually it's okay. I know what it is. I know what this stuff is because I know true nature of reality. But then, you know, if something really, really painful happens, it becomes it fools us again. So we start with little stuff. We start with little annoyances, working up to the big ones. Gradually. Yeah. Thanks for that, that, um, essential question that just, I, Sri Mavadevi would have loved that question. <laughs> and, um, so going on. Oh yeah. Um, this next part, 
the, the, the paragraph we just went over is one that gets quoted in the Ratnagotra Vibhaga and other Buddha nature treatises because it has, it's uniquely put in the sutra. This next one is also unique to the sutra and gets quoted quite often. And kind of, kind of a practical implication of these teachings. Bhagavan, if there were no Tathagatagarbha, Buddha nature, there would be no, here it says revulsion. Uh, I would maybe put it as um, weariness. I think that's how Gregory translated it. Weariness with suffering. Um, weariness with samsara. Um, disillusionment with conditioned birth and death. Samsara. If there were no Tathagatagarbha, we wouldn't get disillusioned with samsara, nor would there be aspiration to seek nirvana. Interesting point, I think. You could say, way-seeking mind. Where does that come from? It comes from Tathagatagarbha. It comes from our true nature. When we feel like, you know, I've tried everything in this life, looking for happiness, everything I've could think of. I, I try a lot of things and some of them, you know, they work okay, but like none of them have brought like, you know, lasting true contentment in a kind of stable way. And if they seem to for a little while, then they seem to change because they're impermanent conditioned experiences. So, you know, couldn't there be something that like a kind of lasting happiness. So then, then you could say, and we start hearing, well, it seems like the Buddha sometimes taught this kind of thing. And then we start practicing zazen. And you could say all this is because of the Tathagatagarbha. And you could, is there some magical principle? Is Tathagatagarbha like this little, little, per, is that word? Hermunculus? <laughs> a little person like in a, in our mind, it's like saying, Hey, Kokyo, wake up. I don't think it's like that. It's just, it's just, it is our true nature that's already free, right? Inherently pure is the name of this chapter. Uh, innately free, free. It is everybody's true nature. All sentient beings have this Buddha nature and that reality. We, you know, it can be like super obscured, but like it can't be completely obscured. It's because it's more real than the obscurations. So for everybody, no matter how depraved a sentient being might be, Buddha nature's is, you know, pokes through, it shines through despite ourselves. And it, how does it shine through? You could say it in various ways, but this is saying, it shines through as this thought of like, I wonder if there's some way to be free in, in the midst of all this changing, unsatisfying stuff. That's like a, that thought is like a, is like a little bodhicitta thought, right? And then that's becoming weary with samsara, with suffering. Literally, it's as we said, becoming um, disillusioned with suffering and weary with suffering and uh i mean or it could go stronger like this translation says revulsion towards suffering i really want to be done with this like suffering business i'm so sick of it 
I'm even suffering about the suffering. And then, and on that side, and then like aspiration, I hear there's, there is a realm that's actually completely free from suffering. Like, not just temporarily, this nirvana teaching, even the foundational teachings, it's just like the point. There is, I, I trust this is possibility. I want to do it. I want to like, I want to like aim my life in that direction. What is seeking my bodhicitta for the benefit of all beings, for myself and for everybody's suffering and everybody's um, freedom and nirvana. So um has to start here. I think that's an amazing sort of like, it's not a philosophical teaching. It's more like a practical major implication. It reminds me a little bit of Suzuki Roshi says somewhere in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, it is wisdom which is seeking wisdom. I think same. That's this teaching. It is wisdom which is seeking wisdom. Um, going, um, going forward a little bit more here in the name of limited time. The Tathagatagarbha is without any prior limit. It's non-arising. It's indestructible. That's, you know, I think it goes along with impermanent and unchanging, but it's nice to throw in there like indestructible. You know, that term Vajra, um, as in Vajrayana and the, the Vajra Sutra, like diamond, um, is generally referring to um, in the indestructibility of Prajnaparamita. Indestructible, like, like you know, an atomic bomb can't touch it. That, that indes- like completely indestructible. This reality cannot be destroyed because it was never born. It, it's not conditioned. It's not impermanent. When the whole universe is destroyed in the raging firestorm at the end of the, at the end of this world system, is this destroyed or not? That's a koan in the Book of Serenity, which receives different answers. Ah. But here, Shimala Devi says, the Chitagadagara is indestructible. Oh, and this is a, this is a nice list here. The Tagadagarbha is without any limit, you could say. It's limitless. It's not arising. It's indestructible. It accepts suffering and it has this weariness or disillusion with suffering and aspiring to nirvana. So the, the nice thing is the juxtaposition here is that, um, is that uh, this accepting suffering is an interesting piece. The Tagadagarbha, our true nature, ever-present awareness, it accepts suffering, right? It's okay with whatever's happened. It's inherently okay with everything. And that way it accepts suffering, and at the same time, it's weary of suffering. Yeah, It accepts suffering and is also weary of suffering. 
Here it says it accepts suffering and has revulsion towards suffering. They sound really contradictory. And experientially, you might want to follow this. It's like this awareness is okay with everything, but it knows there's, an, there's this possibility to be free from this. So it actually like, I accept this and I want to be free from it also. This is a great section to really contemplate. It's a nice kind of like um, a nice sentence actually, sort of summarizing Tathagatagarbha. Tathagatagarbha is limitless, non-arising, indestructible, accepting suffering, having weariness towards suffering and aspiring to nirvana. Wow. The target of Garva is capable of quite a bit. <laughs> um, interestingly here, she goes on, the target of Garva is not a substantial self, nor a living being, nor a um, uh, life force, nor a person. And this list appears in foundational sutras. It appears in the Diamond Sutra, Prajnaparamita Diamond Sutra, um, where Buddha is teaching that um, there is no, no Atman, no, no independent individual self, no Sattva, which is also translated as sentient being, being, sentient being, Jiva, which is like, um, kind of like life force and pudgala means person. That's a nice kind of list of ways that we might grasp some kind of a self. And, uh, so here, remember that Dharmakaya in the sutra is said to be, um, Atma Paramita, a a kind of transcendent self. And now this might sound contradictory. Shumala Devi is saying a more conventional teaching or the other side of the story that um, Tathagatagarbha is not an Atman in the usual Atman sense. I think you mean here. And maybe that's part of the reason why she says Dharmakaya is Atma Paramita. Dharmakaya is a transcendent Atman, true self. But here she's saying Tathagatagarbha, which is, you know, a different, slightly different word than Dharmakaya. But I think you could say this also about the Dharmakaya. But it fits nicely to say Tathagatagarbha. It's not an Atman as a separate permanent self. And it's not a Sattva. The Dharmakaya is not a kind of being. It's not a life force. And it's not a person. It's the reality of our true nature. But we could also hear it as Dharmakaya is a transcendent self, but Tathagatagarbha is not a true self because it's still mixed with the um, apparent obscurations. So that's just like, for those who were starting to freak out when she said earlier, Dharmakaya is Atma Paramita. Now she's saying, but just calm down a little bit. We're not saying it's like, it's kind of like an, in, an individual self. Like these other terms are, are, are clearly talking about an individual 
separate permanent self, a sattva, a jiva, and a pudala. An atman can go either way. It can be like an, often as in other traditions too, we've talked about as an individual permanent self. But in these Buddha nature teachings, when we talk about the true atman, I think we should understand it as it's not an individual personal true self because there's only one Buddha nature. Kokyo? Yes. Maybe you could say it's the way the universal self refers to itself as self. The universal, um, when the universal, true, ungraspable, inconceivable self, um, um, as it's manifest in a person, and the person says, myself, or like, I am drinking some water now. Does that I refer to Buddha nature? Um, or does it refer to the sense of like me, this, this embodied individual person? And it, it could go either way. Well, it could. <laughs> <laughs> when you put it that way. <laughs> and, um, and I know there's, there's traditions like our, our, our dear friend, Rupert Spira uses that teaching a lot. He says, when, when you say, when you say I, and you look to what that I refers to, you'll find that it refers to boundless, um, undying, blissful, um, true nature. And, uh, but then there's Buddhist teachings that say when you say the word I, it refers to the, um, the, uh, the assumption that this collection of five aggregates is myself and this collection of five aggregates is having a cup of water. So, um, I think it could go either way. Yeah. But, but it, but it is, I think in, I've never seen a Buddhist text go quite that far as, as Rupert would go, but I totally see where he's coming from too. And we do have teachings like Suzuki Roshi. Now, I don't know if this is what he meant, but Suzuki Roshi famously says regularly, like, Zen practice is to just be yourself completely. Now we could hear this as just like, just be natural or something, but we could hear it as like a Buddha nature teaching. Be yourself, be your true self. Um, and then, and then, in other words, trust the, who you are and then let your, let your individual personality kind of shine through this self that you really are. I don't know what he meant. Yeah. Yeah, but that's a good exploration we could do. Um, When I say, um, the word I, what, what am I <laughs> referring to? We could check and more and more, like if more we resonate with these kinds of teachings, the more it might shift what that seems to refer to that I. 
the um the Tathagata Garbha is not a realm for living beings who degenerated into the belief in a substantial um individual separate self. Satkaya Drishti is this term for the grasping the five aggregates as a separate self. So um interesting here. Tathagatagarbha is not a realm for sentient beings who degenerated, like all of us sentient beings, into feeling that, like, I actually feel like I am this body and mind and feelings and thoughts. Tathagatagarbha is not a realm for those grasping the separate self or for those who have inverted views based on the view of the separate self like that the impermanent is actually permanent, and so on, or who have minds bewildered by emptiness, like kind of confused about emptiness. Um, a, uh, another translation of this sentence by Carl Brunholzer, Tathagatagarbha is not the sphere of those who have fallen into views about a real personality, those who delight in what is mistaken, and those whose minds are distracted from emptiness. And then uh, then Asanga, because this is quoted in another treatise, Bodhisattva Asanga says, um, this refers to ordinary sentient beings, the ones who um, grasp the uh, separate self as five aggregates of separate self. And it refers to Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas who um, who don't yet have the view of the permanent true self of Buddha nature. And to new bodhisattvas, those who just started hearing about emptiness but then but who misunderstand it. It's a high standard sutra here. Um, The Tathagatagarbha is the womb of dharmas, the womb of all phenomena, which is kind of like earlier I said, it's the basis and foundation for all conditioned things. Here it's the womb of all things, all phenomena, like the experience of this cup is born from the womb of Tathagatagarbha or the storehouse. Um, it's, it's a, the Tathagatagarbha is the womb of the, of all phenomena. It's the womb of the Dharmakaya. It's the transcendental womb and the inherently pure womb. This Tathagatagarbha that's inherently pure is the inconceivable realm of the Tathagata that has been seemingly contaminated by extrinsic obscurations and other defilements. Why? This good mind is momentary and not contaminated. This means like a um, 
that the mind, the virtuous mind is that's arising and ceasing as dualistic consciousness. Um, that one can't, it's just a momentary arising and ceasing consciousness. It can't be contaminated. In other words, dualistic consciousness cannot accumulate, cannot be, um, have contaminants because it only lasts for a moment. This is an interesting point that we maybe don't have time to do justice to. Uh, in other words, the momentary, momentary arising and ceasing mind is not afflicted by afflictions. It's another translation. Then how does the mind, which is unaffected by its very nature, become obscured? Bhagavan. The afflictions do not touch the mind, nor does this pure mind touch the afflictions. This is a nice translation. Same way in which the screen does not touch these images, right? These images don't distort the screen. They, they're inseparable from the screen, but it's not like there's an image that touches the screen, right? You might say, yeah, the image does touch the screen, but the image is not something that can contact. It's not something separate from the screen that could contact the screen. It's just a manifestation of the screen. Can you see how the, the images on the screen don't actually touch the screen? And the screen doesn't touch the images. Okay. Consider that non-contact. -con contact takes two separate entities to meet the contact. It's, that doesn't happen with the images and the screen. Uh, there, um, so the fact that there is this obscuration in a mind that is inherently pure is difficult to comprehend. You might say this very point. The way that these images on the screen do not touch the screen is difficult to comprehend. But it's a good, I think it's a great analogy for this point. If you can follow this. These images on the screen are a manifestation of the screen. They seem like different and they seem to obscure the screen because when we're looking at the image, we don't, we seem to not see the screen, even though we are looking at the screen in the form of the image. But in this case, we're saying the images don't touch the screen. They don't defile the screen or they don't really obscure the screen. This is kind of a commentary on David's question earlier, kind of, uh, so then um, this is sort of one of the punchlines of this section or maybe this whole sutra. The fact that there is a defilement, that there is defilement, in quotation marks, defilement, right? In a mind that is inherently pure is difficult to comprehend. Only the Buddhas, the Bhagavans, who have the eye of truth and the wisdom of truth, who are the sources of Dharma and penetrate the Dharma, and who are the refuge of true dharma can comprehend this truth completely. And uh, when Queen Shimala had explained the difficulties in comprehending the inherently pure mind's defilement, she was questioned by the Buddha. And the Buddha, with extreme joy, praised her and said, Yes! Shimala Devi, it's, that's right. 
It is so, it is so. The fact that there is defilement or obscuration in a mind that is inherently pure is very difficult to comprehend. Buddha just came in and reiterated this. This is the point he really picked up on. That's why I say it's like kind of a punchline. Right? The fact that these images on the screen never tarnish or defile the screen. They're born from the screen and they seem to obscure the screen. They seem to defile our mind, but they don't really. This point is a is kind of a sort of punchline here. And Buddha is like, you're right. The way that that is so is really hard to comprehend. <laughs> but I hope you have some taste of it a little bit in this discussion. And uh, there are, the Buddha goes on, there are two subjects that are very difficult to completely comprehend. One, the mind that is inherently pure. Dharmakaya, Buddha nature, ordinary mind is present right now through this whole convoluted conversation. This ordinary mind is quite difficult to completely comprehend, isn't it? Totally ungraspable. And yet, this is it. That's one thing that's difficult to completely comprehend. The inherently pure mind. What's the other one? The fact that this same mind seems to be contaminated by defilements or obscured by obscurations. These are the two things difficult to completely comprehend. Wow. That's a good punchline. The Buddha comes in there. These two subjects can be heard by you, Srimala Devi, and the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas who have the great Dharma. The others, like Shravakas, they can have faith in the Buddha's words about this topic, but they might not comprehend it because it's very profound. So basically, um, that's the end of this great chapter 13 on the inherently pure. And then there's just the conclusion of the sutra. Very briefly, because we're out of time here, um, just to sort of get the flavor of capping it off. Buddha says, um, after my final party nirvana in future generations, my disciples who have the early stages of faith in the Dharma and the subsequent more fervent faith starting to become trust and confidence and the subsequent wisdom of the Dharma that's based upon the illumination of true trust or confidence will attain the ultimate, even though their inherently pure minds have become obscured by obscurations. The ultimate is the cause. The ultimate truth is the cause for entering the path of the Mahayana. Faith and trust in the Tathagata has great benefits. Do not slander the Dharma's profound meaning, even if you don't fully comprehend it. If you have some faith in it, this has already great benefits. 
where Queen Shimala and her attendants prostrated to the Buddha. The Buddha said, excellent, Queen Shimala, in the most profound armor, protected by skillful means, please, Shimala Devas, Devi, subdue what is not the Dharma and maintain well the correct Dharma. You have already been very close to hundreds of millions of Buddhas and can explain this Dharma's meaning. And then the Buddha emitted this excellent light radiating everywhere over the assembly. His body ascended into the sky and he walked in the sky back to the kingdom of Shravasti, where he came from. And uh, Srimala and her attendants faced the Buddha and were transfixed by the sight of the Buddha without moving. And um, so on. Then all the women in the city, seven years of age and older, were converted to the Mahayana. <laughs> but here in this teaching, I love this how it starts with the women. And you could say the ones under seven, it's a little sophisticated, this teaching. So um, when they turn seven, they can read the Shimala Devi Sutra and have it have it explained by their parents. And um, then the, uh, then I think it's the, um, uh, then the king, the Queen Shimala's husband, King Mitriyasha's, was converted to the Mahayana. Converted means like, they just like, I'm going to follow this way now. That's awesome. <laughs> I think it's what it means. Then all the um, the uh, men, seven years of age and older, were converted to the Mahayana. Women first. They got it first. Then the king. Then all the all the all the men, except for the under seven year old. And then all the citizens of the state returned toward the Mahayana. And um, then. The, the Bhagavan Buddha back in, in um, the Jetta Grove um, spoke to Ananda and Chakra, the Lord of the Gods, right, with his retinue that arrived there and were listening. So there was a question in Sashin about, can anyone but humans realize the, this awakening? Here's an example of the gods keep listening to the sutra and realizing awakening. And then the Buddha is saying, um, Kaushika, which is the name, of, the kind of personal name of Indra, Lord of the Gods. And uh, I feel like a kind of connection with Indra because Kaushika in Sanskrit means owl. The kind of like personal kind of down-home kind of family name. When Buddha is talking to Indra, he says Kaushika, he says owl. Owl, um, please take care of this good teaching uh, and um, you study it and teach it too Indra Kaushika and um, and teach it to the gods the devas and Ananda you um, accept and read it too and teach it again Kaushika owl the explanations of the sutra eliminate all doubts be steadfast in the complete meaning of this text and enter the path of the one vehicle Kaushika, today the scripture 
Srimala Devi Simhanada Sutta Sutra has been transmitted to you. As long as the Dharma continues, accept, read, extensively define and explain this sutra. And Lord Chakra said to the Buddha, very well, Bhagavan, we will reverently receive your holy teaching. Then King of Heaven, Indra, Chakra, Owl, the Venerable Ananda and all the great assemblies of gods, Asuras, Gandharvas, among others, heard the Buddha's teaching and joyfully put it into practice. Thank you very much for your patience with this difficult sutra. The, the, the merit of even just listening to this sutra and these kind of like clunky convoluted um, explanations about it uh, is inconceivable and uh, and will be of great benefit to um, sentient beings in this world system for um, ages to come I trust and uh, and may may this inconceivable merit um, spread and emanate like the Buddha's great light throughout all world systems so that all beings may realize that their obscurations do not actually obscure their true nature of Tagadagarbha and thus enter the one vehicle. May our intention equally extend to every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Illusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to be kind.